It's Zhang Hu Hustle. Hello, and welcome back to Zhang Hu Hustle. I'm here with my co-host, Eric Farmer. And I'm here with my co-host, Eli Kurtz. And we're both here with a special guest, P.K. Sullivan. Hey, guys. I'm honored to be here. Yeah, we're so excited to have you on. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for joining us. Oh, absolutely. I wouldn't miss it. So today we're talking about wuxia motifs in Western settings as seen in The Matrix and John Wick. No, not that one. It's a Keanu off. So one of the reasons why we wanted to have PK on today is because PK introduced me to this idea that John Wick is an excellent example of the Zhang Hu in media. Uh, And so I think it'll be really fun to get uh, PK's take on that. And before we jump into that, we should probably do some details about the movie. Uh, Eric, you want to run those by us? We should all know The Matrix by now. came out in 1999. It was written and directed by the Wachowskis as Keanu Reeves as Neo, Lawrence Fishburne as Morpheus, Carrie Ann Moss as Trinity, and Hugo Weaving as Agent Smith. And the second feature in our Keanu off is John Wick from 2014. It was directed by... Chad Stileski and David Leach was written by Derek Kolstad, stars Keanu Reeves, Michael Nykvist, Adrian Palicki, Ian McShane, John Leguizamo, and Willem Dafoe, plus Dean Winters. And, uh, you know, it was really interesting watching these two things uh, side by side and watching uh, Keanu sort of evolve as a physical presence and an acting presence mm-hmm. uh, in, in the movies here. So... Yeah, he has almost no surfer dude accent in John Wick. Right. Yeah. His chops have really, really come quite a long way, I have to say. And I think it, the movie takes advantage of his of his talents. Eli and I have talked in private about our admiration for Keanu Reeves as a physical presence on screen, uh, but not necessarily his acting chops. But I think I think he does a pretty good job in John Wick. Uh, the Matrix, we'll talk about. <laughs> he plays a very good kind of starry-eyed wonder boy uh, in The Matrix, I suppose. But yeah, I mean, Keanu Reeves is good at one or two things, and it just so happens that John Wick highlights those one or two things. So uh, I think um, I think it's maybe his best movie. I, I haven't seen most of his filmography, but I'm willing to say it's probably the best work he's ever done. I would agree with that. So let's go over the plots real quick to The Matrix and John Wick. So the plot of The Matrix, I'm sure we've probably all seen it, but it's the first time for someone. So to give a quick recap, Keanu Reeves plays Thomas Anderson, software drone by day, cool hacker man by night, uh, who is on a quest to discover the, the, the big question. What is The Matrix? And he gets drawn in by a crew of people who are sort of larger than life and cooler than cool, who teach him the truths about The Matrix. And the truth of The Matrix is that it's all a computer simulation and that the real world is actually being controlled by AIs that uh, are in a constant war with humanity and they're using humanity as their power source. And they use The Matrix as a control mechanism to keep humanity in its place. And he is specifically recruited by Morpheus, who's sort of a John the Baptist type character, to 
become the Messiah to, to, uh, I mean, not pin too fine a point on it where once he discovers the true nature of the world, he's able to manipulate it and use it against the evil robots. And on top of that, there is a love story and there is a great antagonist in the form of agent Smith, who was a computer program inside of the matrix and there's all kinds of stunning wuxia action, and it blew all of our pants off in 1999 when it came off. I know it did for me because I was 20 years old, and it blew my mind. <laughs> That's the Matrix. We'll go over kind of more about it as as we go along. Uh, Eli, do you want to talk about the plot to John Wick? I think it's probably even more straightforward than than the Matrix. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, John Wick it's it is really simple i don't want to spoil too much because there are some real hard-hitting moments in the early part that i don't want to spoil for anybody oh you know um, i i knew it going in and they still hit super hard i i had to warn my wife like there's a there's a trigger warning about animal abuse in john wick and so heads up everybody yeah my my wife noped right out of it when she tried watching it because of that scene and she knew about it going in Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a hard scene. I, I'm not even a dog person. So let me just spoil this. Okay. Um, John Wick is a man who was an elite assassin and he got out because he found a woman that he loved. And then in the opening scenes of the movie, his wife dies from some sort of disease, probably cancer. And um, he is living his own life and she gives him this little puppy that as part of her will that he can use to kind of cope with her loss. And he runs into some bad kind of uh, rowdy kids and they like his car and they follow him to his house and they beat him up and they kill his dog and they steal his car. And he goes on a roaring rampage of revenge where that basically tears apart the criminal underworld of New York City. Um, I think movies with Mikey probably gives the best take of or the most succinct take of what happens in this movie. Uh, one of John Wick is known as the boogeyman. He's this figure who can just totally destroy anything and he's coming for you. And once he does, there's nothing that can stop him. And uh, Mikey compares this setting in general to an Olympian kind of godlike setting. All of these people, all of these figures are larger than life. They're Shakespearean in that way. And John Wick is the boogeyman who goes to Mount Olympus and kills all the gods. And so you get a lot of great action. You get a lot of great stunt driving. You get some beautiful cinematography and lighting and just everything about this movie is a preposterous win. Um, And Keanu Reeves does all of his own stunts, including the driving. It's really impressive work. But uh, in the course of his revenge, you find that he's going against this guy who used to be his employer. He's a, an underworld boss and his son turns out to be the one who uh, stole Keanu's car and, and killed his dog. And and so there's this really fraught undercurrent through the whole movie. You know, every single moment, it's like, it's really clear that all of these people are forced to act in ways that they don't want to, but at the same time, they admit that they're forced to do it and they do it to the best of their ability. Just a really solid movie start to finish, I think. So now that we've covered the synopsis for both movies, we're going to dive into uh, examining wuxia tropes in these movies that take place in Western settings. And I think it's important 
before we jump into this, that we acknowledge that uh, wuxia is intrinsically tied to Chinese culture in a lot of ways that we've already explored in previous episodes. And uh, these movies have nothing to do with Chinese culture specifically. The Matrix comes uh, draws a lot of inspiration from Japanese culture, but that's a different thing. And uh, there's a lot of room for appropriation as we go about this conversation. So we just want to acknowledge to start off with that we are going to try and do this as respectfully as we can. And we acknowledge from the get-go that at best, these things are near approximations of the genre we are exploring. So yeah, let's go ahead and jump into this. Uh, PK, you had some thoughts about the presence of heterotopia in the matrix. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. The heterotopia in the matrix is super, super explicit because we have the matrix which is the dream world that everyone lives in. The movie starts there and it's basically 1999 as we, the audience remember 1999. And then we have quote unquote, the real world, which for ease of use, I'm just going to call Zion, which is the name of the last human city. So Zion exists outside of the matrix. And it's really the only place that exists outside of the matrix. And this is where Neo escapes to, finds his allies, and sort of comes to realize that that is where his home is. So the heterotopia is absolutely explicit, not only visually, because the way that the Matrix and Zion are portrayed are wildly different. In the Matrix, Neo has hair and eyebrows and, you know... (laughs) (laughs) dresses in a nice suit. Uh, But when we first see him in Zion, he is hairless and scrawny and has no eyebrows coated in goop. And then he gets taken onto the Nebuchadnezzar, which is sort of very millennium Falcon in it's, you know, lived in broken down future ship sort of style. And, that really tells you just at the barest glance which half of the heterotopia you're in, whether it's the Matrix or Zion. But even beyond that, the rules of the worlds are different. Just like the Jonghu in normal society, you have different laws and uh, sort of social constructs working. In the Matrix, you can bend and even break the laws of reality. But once you're in Zion, you are painfully bound to normal laws of physics. So the heterotopia is the strongest and most distinct with no crossover, uh, almost no crossover. There's a, I mean, there's a little bit of crossover with the threat to, and, and I, I think this might be part of where um, some of the issues I have with the movie as a Wuxia film start is that there is actually a connection point between the two because we have we have the 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 real world scale the zion scale where people are pathetic meatbags in this crappy ship eating goop uh and then we have the the matrix version where everybody's super cool in their fetish wear and their cool suits and um doing kung fu and being rad but there's that connection point where you can be killed. Your meat body can be killed, and then your uh, then your matrix body dies. You die, 
and so it I know why they did it from a narrative perspective, and I, I agree with that. But when we're comparing it to the heterotopia that we see in like the Magic Blade or in Iron Monkey, that it because there's that connection there, it's they're not they're never um, they're never side by side. They're always connected in that way. Uh, and there's also some visual themes of as the agents are closing in on the people in the matrix, the Sentinel robots are closing in on the Nebuchadnezzar. So that's another sort of connection between the, the real world and uh, the matrix sort of a suggestion that the, the agents are the Sentinels or inhabit them. It's never explicitly stated, but it always struck me that that's the sort of, uh, theme that they're going for is the sentinels and the agents are the same thing just to, they are the dark mirror to the humans who can go between zion on the matrix in that they exist in both places i i had noticed that uh synchronization i guess in terms of the agents closing in at the same time that the sentinels were but i hadn't considered that perhaps the agents are connected to the sentinels in a way that's more than just, you know, like signaling in an airstrike or something. Um, that's a pretty cool idea. I wanted to point out one other point of distinction between the real world and the matrix. This is kind of just a bit of film geek trivia, but um, whenever they're in the matrix, the filmmakers used a subtle green filter over the camera so that everything looks a little bit like you're looking at it through a screen. Um, and that's just one of the ways that you can tell there aren't really any moments in the movie where it's like, am I in the matrix or am I in the real world? Because the difference is so distinct, but that's one clue that you get. Everything looks just a little greener, uh, in the matrix than anywhere else. Uh, it's kind of a neat little, little thing, but Eric, you said that you felt like this heterotopia is not the same as the heterotopia in a Wuxia story. And I think we'll get into this a little bit more with John Wick, but I wonder if there isn't a closer connection than you're saying, because a lot of the character beats of the characters in this movie do not conform to a Wuxia story, but you do have the matrix, which is a world inhabited by these superpowered Shah, but at the same time, it's also inhabited by just mundane copper tops who are still plugged into the matrix and, and aren't aware of this wider world. And I think that's an important ingredient in the building of the Zhang Hu uh, that the matrix has within it. You know, even if there are a lot of places where it fails to obtain the wuxia genre. Oh, I, I agree with that, that the, that, that our, our group of, of hackers that are now freed are definitely our, our Zhang Hu of the, of the movie. Uh, and even in even the agents are the the Jung Hu because they they both exist in and separate from the Matrix. Uh, if if the Matrix is the real world, like uh, we can talk about Zion being the real world, but it's kind of not. It kind of it only matters in that if it goes away, then everything goes away. But the Matrix mm -hmm. is where everyone can express themselves fully, and so that's the more interesting mm -hmm. place for the story to go. I think part of it is just that, that connection, that, that body connection between the two. I, it's not that I have a problem with it. Like I said, narratively, it's not a thing that we've seen in the Wuxia stories that we've looked at before. And I, I'll be honest. It, I may be making a bigger point out of this than it needs to be because as I watched the movie, I actually had 
more problems with it just from its narrative construction and its writing than I did necessarily with whether mm. it is wuxia or not wuxia. Uh, I had I had a hard time sort of tunneling my way through the first 40 minutes uh, before the movie sort of really kicks in, B- before I could really get to the point like, well, what am I watching here? Am I watching a wuxia story or or what? What is going on here? Uh, but I think that part, like the, the heterotopia is very clear. I mean, like you said, they have the green filter and everybody's much cooler and all of that that stuff it's very separate and divided and i think that part is is true um but there's that uh that narrative connection because people can exist simultaneously in both spaces makes it an unusual wuxia story uh if it is one the other thing about the jiang hu in the matrix is in every wuxia movie i can think of the normal people are aware of the Zhang Hu. They might call it the underworld in the translation, things like that. They might think it's outlaws and whatnot, but they're aware of it. Inside the Matrix, the only people aware of what we're calling the Zhang Hu are people in the Zhang Hu in some way, shape, or form. It's the agents, the enlightened humans, and then programs like the Oracle. Yeah, and I mean, you do get the sense that programs like the Oracle and the the various people who are in her waiting room and are kind of hopefuls to be the next Oracle, you get the sense that they're not actively involved in the fight. So they are sort of the normals of the world, the people who are not a part of the Zhang Hu, but they're also unquestionably a part of it. They just don't happen to have a martial role within it. You know, I think of the, I think of the uh, calligraphers in mm. Hero. Uh, how they were not a part of the Zhang Hu, but in that moment when the army was attacking their city, they displayed the qualities of the Zhang Hu. And I think there's a, a similarity with the Oracle and her retinue as well. I actually thought the part with the Oracle was some of the most wuxia that the movie got. Her stance as teacher and giving, because I think part of the problem that I was having with the story is that is that unlike in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, where everything is really oblique, uh, almost everything in The Matrix is super straightforward. It's it, it no, Very few people are sort of concealing their motives. And when the Oracle tells Neo that he's not the one, and she's transmitting this wisdom to him, but he doesn't know what he's receiving yet, uh, I, I, I always feel like that's the part of the movie that that feels like that master student thing that I wanted to see from, from Morpheus and Neo. And I don't get as much as I want out of the movie. Yeah, I could see that. I think uh, oblique versus direct uh, solutions are a lot more common in Chinese culture than they are in any Western culture. Uh, For example, the art of war is full of advice on how to attack uh, your opponent in a way that's not direct in a way that is surprising or whatever. Um, and that's, that's just, that is not limited to the martial culture of China. It's also, it's, it's a part of just daily lived experience as well as part of deference and that sort of thing. Yeah. So I can see where you're coming from there about the Oracle being an example of, of Wuxia in that regard. And I, I think another thing that's kind of interesting is that the antagonist or the antagonistic forces, you know, you've got Neo and their crew, and then you've got the agents opposed to them. There doesn't seem to be any 
camaraderie. That doesn't sound, I feel like that's not quite the right word, but it, I feel in most of the Wuxia movies we watch, even Iron Monkey, you know, the, the corrupt Shaolin monk, who's now the government official, he is nakedly antagonistic toward the protagonists of the movie. But at the same time, he at least acknowledges their skill, whereas the agents seem to have only disdain for the people who are awakened within the Matrix. And I don't know, maybe it is that part of Wuxia? Is that sort of mutual acknowledgement something that's a part of the genre? I think it is, if only because that is the basis, seeming to me, of a lot of the heroic tales in Chinese culture, the ones that I'm familiar with. I read a number of the the myths and legends from uh, sort of pre-imperial China and the, the the kingdoms and the first emperor, or not the first, I, f- I forget what it was. Gosh, this was probably 20 years ago. But it was a lot of the larger-than-life heroes who sort of respect each other, very much like uh, Beowulf, where when he's dealing with other people who exist on his same scale there's at least a grudging respect uh, as they try to, you know, outboast each other and uh, tell tales that, you know, of the things that they did that were so much better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you do definitely see that in a lot of Wuxia stories, the boasting, if nothing else. But I think that's part of the mutual sharing and revelation that is kind of a hallmark Mm -hmm. of the genre. For me, the big reason why I don't think the heterotopia really fits the tropes at, or and narrative structure of Wuxia in the Matrix is because Zion and the Matrix are, they only exist in opposition to each other. Where in Wuxia, you have the Zhang Hu and normal society existing side by side in almost a cooperative or complementary fashion. Because the Zhang Hu exists to pick up the slack where the normal government and societal structure lets people down. And it's the the heroes of the Zhang Hu who are able to sort of impose law and good order and justice where the government cannot. I think that's I think that's excellent. I think it's super on point. I, I think it, it kind of leads right into uh, a question that that I had about the movie, which was it's so nakedly a hero's journey story. Does that, does that get in the way of, of this, of this Wuxia story that, that can we, can we have both, you know, and maybe that it's sort of clumsily handled in the matrix, but this uh, every, uh, while I was watching it, I, I was just mapping it on to star Wars when you, when you said, Oh, the Nebuchadnezzar is like the millennium Falcon. And I was like, <laughs> Yeah, and Morpheus is sort of Han Solo plus Obi Wan, and then you know, and, and then you know, at some point we we have the battle at the end with the Emperor, and and Luke m- makes the spiritual change, and then and then he wins, and and you know he he finally like achieves he achieves his his spiritual goal, and then that goes on to benefit everyone, and it's a very paint by numbers hero's journey that we get in the matrix the young man gets the call but he refuses the call and then he meets a woman and she convinces him to go through the you know to to take on these tasks and then 
his world changes enough so that he can no longer go back. And now he goes on and now he meets a master and then the master comes and instructs him. And it's this, it's this story that we've seen over and over again. Um, and I'm wondering if, if that is compatible with the Wuxia story or whether because it's so naked and so obvious that it's just getting, getting in the way of me seeing the Wuxia elements within it. I think it's just because it's so obvious that it's sort of, um, you know, jamming your radar a little bit. Uh, the story that comes to mind most for me is Once Upon a Time in China 2, uh, starring Jet Li and mm. Donnie Yen, where Jet Li is playing Wang Fei Hung as an adult who is traveling in China um, around the turn of the century, uh, turn of the 20th century, uh, right around the Boxer Rebellion. And that's sort of the the background plot. Jet Li's character, uh, Wang Fei Hung, wants, doesn't want to get involved in the politics and repeatedly tries to just walk away, but eventually gets embroiled in things and comes to a clash with Donnie Yen's character, who is uh, sort of thrown in with the English and the foreigners and things like that. And then they have one of the greatest showdowns in the climax of the movie um, where Donnie Yen puts his staff fighting to on full display and then turns a, a, a cloth into a staff and Oh, it's phenomenal. Highly recommended. Um, but yeah, like the, the hero's journey can happen in Wuxia, but it, it's not always, going to be that paint by numbers and that obvious. You know, one of the things that trips me up about this movie is its inspiration that it draws from anime and from Japanese stories in general. You know, I think a lot of samurai motifs are present within this movie. And I'm not, I mean, I think it's safe to say that China and Japan have shared a lot of culture over their history together. And I think it's safe to say that a lot of, their stories will have a lot of similar elements to them, if only because of a common religious background with Buddhism and other uh, faiths over there. But um, yeah, I don't know. I think maybe it's another situation where it's just kind of too ham fisted. You know, it seems like so much of this is, is drawing from anime tropes and from samurai tropes. Can we really call this a wuxia movie uh, in the same way that, if it's so overtly a hero's journey, does it also miss the mark there? But that makes me start to wonder, are we hesitant to call this wuxia because of these ingredients? Or are we hesitant to call this wuxia because it's generally just trying too hard and we don't want to give the movie more credit than it deserves on any grounds? <laughs> you know, Right. So let's talk about the part I think that the movie gets pretty right. Um, we've talked about kind of the ham-fisted writing and some of the plotting and that sort of thing, but the action, I think we can all agree, especially when I saw this, you know, I hadn't seen this in a, in a Western movie before this, uh, the, the way that this action was constructed, uh, and the way it was paced and, and, and all of that. And we get both, yeah. uh, martial hand-to-hand fighting and we get all kinds of gun, gun fighting combined with wirework martial arts. So the the thing that i found when i was watching it as i was still i thought that part really held up i thought the action was still really good the the parts that i had 
I had questions about, I have mostly questions, is what are these fights communicating besides competence? The the lobby scene, as far as I can tell, just demonstrates competence. There is enough talking in the dojo scene that I mean that that kind of starts starts to get it where we can see them communicating and that that exchange of of knowledge and ideas of each other as they're fighting i think that part's pretty solid and then when uh neo finally has this sort of enlightened moment when he's fighting the agent um we get you're talking about down in the subway uh yeah i think um no i i was actually but i think that down in the subway is actually probably a better example uh than the one where he starts dodging the bullets oh yeah yeah oh for me the the moment that really uh, conveys something through violence is after Neo it resurrects himself and he's just one-handed taking on Agent Smith. Right. He yeah. reminded like me of that, Mumbai at that point. Uh-huh. Right. And the the dojo scene, as far as communication through violence, falls a little flat because it's very talking. Mm-hmm. There's a yeah. lot of lecturing going on from Morpheus to Neo, and then a lot of commentary on the Nebuchadnezzar as they're all watching the Matrix. Um, I think it's Mouse who's just like, Jesus, he's fast, as they're mm-hmm. watching the falling letters go by. So it's, I, there's not a lot that's, con- to me, that's communicated through violence. Um, the best example of, uh, sort of storytelling without dialogue is the opening scene where uh, Trinity sees Agent Smith and is just running. That's a phenomenal mm-hmm. action sequence. It demonstrates who she is um, on like a superpowered competence level, but also clearly indicates that this agent, whatever he is, is so incredibly scary that even this woman who can jump across. 40 feet through a tiny window has no choice but to run. Right. And we get a demonstration of her scale right away when she takes out all, all of those, those cops. Right. And then we go, Oh, if she's scared of, of, of these people, how badass are they? Yeah. That I, I also think that the, I think there's little glimmers of it kind of all the way through. And I think that's really where uh, I am most comfortable saying uh, like, these are the wuxia elements that, that I really like. Um, I think I think that scene that you pointed out, um, I think the subway scene uh, where Neo is starting to recognize his power and agents. But I think it's actually Agent Smith that's communicating more because Agent Smith is he's communicating his rage. Right. He's sick of being in the Matrix and like mm-hmm. being in a physical body, essentially. Uh, and I think we see that really well demonstrated in that scene. Yeah. Well, and from Neo's perspective in that scene too, uh, the message that he communicates to me is the same message that I broadcast whenever I'm playing a video game and I get to like the second or third boss. And I'm like, okay, I know what I can do at this point, but this is the hardest foe I've faced so far. Let's see how well I know how to uh, block and dodge right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, he's like, he's like, I'm, I'm not a newbie anymore, but I can't, quite face this guy, but I'm going to try to do it for as long as I can. And I think that's a a message that's really clearly communicated without any dialogue in that fight. 
So yeah, no, I think, and I had totally forgotten about the first fight scene with uh, Trinity and that's one of the best ones in the movie, of course. Um, but yeah, I think those two examples are really good examples of communication through violence. So is there any other, uh, any other part of the matrix that we think is worth mentioning in terms of Wuxia? I wanted to touch on something that um, you mentioned a little earlier in that the Kung Fu dojo scene, how that's influenced by anime tropes and things. It really struck me as I was watching this, that the famous line from the matrix is I know Kung Fu. And immediately they go into a, a simulation that is clearly Japanese architecture they're clearly wearing uh, Japanese gi for their uh, sort of sparring gear. And they're talking about a Chinese martial art, um, <laughs> which I don't know how, I don't know how conscious that choice was uh, from the costume designer. Um, I don't know if the costume designer knows that there are like the traditional clothing worn by Chinese martial artists is very different from Japanese martial artists, mm-hmm. but that's something that just struck me hugely as I'm just like, oh, okay, cool. We're going to see something like in Crouching Tiger, Tiger, Hidden Dragon, where Jen and Shulian uh, have their big throwdown. And I'm like, wait a minute. This looks like it's in the mountains of Japan. Well, okay. So that's, it's not 100% um, a reference to Chinese culture. I think it's just that I know Kung Fu sounds better than I know karate. Uh, is probably what it came down to. Karate fell out of favor in the 80s, I think, whereas Kung Fu was still relatively mysterious or something, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, no, that that moment, I'm willing to just call it appropriation. Uh, I I know that they were heavily influenced by Japanese culture, and I know that Yoon Ping did the action choreography for this movie. And so it might just be kind of clumsy, you know. Well, I mean, I think uh, one thing that... that you can tell from the matrix is that uh, that style kind of matters more than the, the actual substance. So I suspect what they wanted because it takes place in the construct and not in the matrix itself, that they were looking for something that looked very sort of stripped down and elegant and kept everything really simple. So you could focus on the exciting action. So it may mm-hmm. have been a conscious decision in that way to create a visual space that, uh, that was simple. I mean, I, this is this is sort of explaining, it, but I agree that it's. I, I think it's appropriation, but I think that the movie takes a lot of. I mean, it appropriates. People are wearing, you know, all kinds of interesting uh, fetish wear, and then we have a little like young white child who's some sort of like bodhisattva, and we have all. I mean, it is just a mishmash. This movie, and it mm-hmm. it all looks great, but it's all about a half an inch deep. And I think in subsequent movies, whenever you go to Zion and you see all of the melting pot that happens there, I think they achieve that aesthetic a little better in Zion than they do within the Matrix. You know, the the white bodhisattva is definitely a glaring error in my mind, whereas all of the people of all different ethnicities dancing in Zion is a little bit more okay in my eyes, you know. And and it may it may be because they're not attempting to do anything uh, in terms of costuming there. You know, they're just like all the people are wearing the same sort of scraps, and they just happen to all be living together. 
Uh, and that's a, a better example of a melting pot than trying to blend all these cultures, which to today's eyes looks a lot like a failure to acknowledge uh, cultural. I think the, the Wachowskis, uh, I think they were trying in certain ways. I think the crew of the Nebuchadnezzars are really like nice, diverse cast. And mm-hmm. they were really trying. I wish they mattered to the story more. Um, but I have a feeling that <laughs> yeah. that is a that might be an artifact of it being uh, coming out in 1999. Um, but it, you could have packed that ship with a bunch of white people uh, and nobody would have noticed in 1999. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I think there are some while I am cr- pretty critical of the movie now. Uh, I think there are lots of places where it succeeds. Yeah. And so I think overall, The Matrix kind of mixed, kind of a mixed bag. There's kind of a, a, a smorgasbord of things that goes into it. And it has some Musha elements and it has some other elements. But uh, I, I think it's useful to have these questions and pick apart the movie so that we can develop our understanding of of what we think Wuxia is and isn't. And also uh, what appropriation looks like. Totally. Well, and like you've said before, Eric, um, I don't know if you've said it on air, but I think it's valuable to not only look at good examples of wuxia, but also to look at bad examples of wuxia so that we can zero in on what is good. You know, uh, bad examples are instructive more so than good examples in a lot of ways. Absolutely. Absolutely. Should we move on to what is perhaps a better example of the wuxia? Yeah, so we just covered the big budget B movie, and now we can cover the uh, surprise sleeper hit A+. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I just missed this movie. I don't know what happened. I just watched it. I was completely blown away. And But I was thinking about PK, your, your... I don't your theory. I don't know that, that that's the right word, but you 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 stated that the the movie had was the best example of the Zhang Hu that you had seen. Um, I don't know in a Western movie or ever. Or do you want to uh, elaborate on that? Uh, I think this actually came out of a face to face conversation that I had with Eli because uh, we get together once a month for dinner with some other writers, uh, and we were talking about uh, Zhang Hu Hustle and. As we were talking about it and spitballing ideas and discussing what the Zhang Hu is, uh, because uh, if I'm remembering correctly, I had gone to a friend's birthday party and he wanted to go to his favorite dive bar and then catch a midnight movie at our local independent theater. And that movie was the Five Element Ninjas. Oh, it's so fun. Uh, Right. And it's phenomenal. And that's where I had sort of the dawning realization that, I mean, I've always loved Kung Fu movies, but I never really delved into them much. And I had the dawning realization that the martial world, which is what the translation was using for the Zhang Hu, was a thing with a capital T, a thing in Kung Fu movies. And I started diving into my catalog of various movies and watching them and being like, oh, I see all this. And discussing it with Eli, I had recently seen John Wick as well. And I was just like, oh, well, this is actually a lot like John Wick in that there's this underworld that exists right in the heart of New York City, but no one really talks about it. They try to avoid drawing its attention because of the consequences that happen. And even within normal society, if you know about it 
and something is going on that normally would be breaking the law, you just sort of let that happen and you don't get involved. Uh, because there's a great scene in John Wick where it's the first major action scene where 12 dudes are sent to kill John and he kills them all. And then he gets a knock at the door and it's a cop. And the cop is just like, Hey John, we, um, we had some noise complaints and John's just like, yeah, it's been a bit of a night. And the cop looks in and he sees all the dead bodies. He's like, are, are you working again, John? And John's just like, no, I'm just, I'm sorting some things out. And the cop gets a look on his face and he's just like, all right, well, try to keep the noise down and just walks away, which is like, he's a cop. He has no reason to know that the world's best assassin is living in this suburb of New York, but he does and he recognizes it. And he also knows there's nothing he can do about it. So to me, that was just like, oh, this is exactly like the uh the iron monkey and chief fox or um certe and limu bai like they recognize that these people have their own world and their own abilities and their own rules and we just we don't interfere and as we discover, uh, they they have their own economy with the gold coins. Yeah, was one of the things that that when when he he digs up the 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 guns and these gold coins. You know, I'm watching this last night. I'm like these gold coins, and I always, this always cracks me up in stories when people have gold, and you're like, "Well, where are you going? You spend gold, right?" And then they answer the question that this is the currency of the underworld. Yep, and mm-hmm. it 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 makes it really enhances that side-by-side nature of of the Zhang Hu mm-hmm. in, in John Wick. I thought it was super clever. The thing I love about, about John Wick is it's incredibly mythic, right? You see this underworld, and everybody there is just incredibly deadly and sexy and powerful, but there's just this little sense of magic and otherness where things are different and you see that in the gold coins you see that in the way that people talk to each other and when i first saw john wick i came up with the idea that john wick is actually a mage game where all of the assassins Mm. are mages with spheres and violets because the bigger and showier that your violence is the more damage you suffer in return and if you break the rules it really snaps back at you. Yeah, this is something. So uh, PK, the first time we ever talked about this was actually on Twitter. And you were, I think you were watching John Wick and tweeting about it a little bit. And so we talked about the cycle of violence that is on display in John Wick. You know, it's not just that the the bigger and flashier displays of violence make you more likely to get slapped down, but it's actually from a narrative perspective, the violence is what put the powerful people in power in the first place. And the only way to dislodge those powerful people is with violence. But then once you dislodge them, you become that powerful person and you are the, the target of further violence for people who want to displace you and become the next person in power. And we see that so clearly throughout the entire movie. John Wick doesn't actually want to be the one in power. He just wants to tear it all down. But everybody else who's connected to this world is clearly going through some sort of dog-eat-dog hierarchy. Uh, 
and they're trying to work their way up through that, you know? Yep. I, I mean, I, I really saw the parallels between this and the magic blade when I was watching it, that the John wick mm. would, would be a, uh, a younger sort of more capable peacock King, right. Who's like, look, my scale is the highest of, of everyone. And I have, I have all of these abilities, but I'm retiring and you're going to let me retire because I can do this. But we know that that's an untenable situation. And, and that, and the movie that, I mean, that's where the movie starts is when that, that status quo breaks and, and uh, then we get to see the action roll, roll forward from there. But it's like Fu Hung Su in, in the magic blade, it's lonely at the top, right? You, you can go through and you can exist your life with, with violence. And he carves his way up through the martial world, trying to achieve his aims as well. And has sort of a, I mean, it has sort of a similar ending where they both achieve their goals at the end. John Wick's goal is, is revenge. I mean, it's just a pure revenge drama, but once he's finally achieved it, he wants to reset that status quo from where he was at the beginning of the film. Well, and it's like Lee Mubai says too, you know, when he's talking to uh, Shulian in that tea house, he, he says, I tried sincerely to leave the world of the Zhang Hu, but it keeps pulling me back in. And by the same token, John at the beginning of the movie was out uh, on paper anyway. And then his wife dies and we find out that through no fault of his own, he gets drawn back in because that's just the life that he has lived. I mean, it's like no dark cloud even, right? Like dark cloud wanted to, he wanted to mm-hmm. leave the, the Jung Hu lifestyle so he could settle down with Jen, but everywhere he went, people recognized him. And that's John wick everywhere. He mm-hmm. goes, his reputation precedes him except for this one character. Yeah. And we see the deference of that. Yeah. Well, yeah, he made the poor mistake. And it makes you wonder how long ago John Wick got out if this guy who's in his 20s has no idea who he is, you know. They they say uh, it's been about five years. Oh, okay. So maybe this kid was just oblivious or something whenever. Well, I mean, if he's, I mean, figure if the kid's like 20 or whatever, you know, he doesn't get, doesn't get really pulled into the family business until turns 18. Yeah, that makes sense. Like, I mean, if I were if I were a crime lord, I wouldn't, you know, put my son to work in the family business until at least he was legal age to, you know, make his own choices. <laughs> you know, that might be why you're not a crime lord, though. There, yeah, I mean, it's not an unreasonable hypothesis. <laughs> it's right. It's one. It's, of it's the on the list. Anyway, it might I'm not sure be towards the top. <laughs> it's just you know, it's 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 a contributing <laughs> factor. Let's list it there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So the beginning of the movie is super powerful, and I think it's what pushes the the storyline forward in a way that doesn't break my suspension of disbelief. We've talked about this, the Jung Hu, they have these gold coins, and John Wick can call up and there's a body removal service, and there's a special nightclub where you have to put a gold coin in to get the door to open, and it's awesome, and everybody's super sexy and dancing, and it's just this club, and you're like, are all of these people assassins? What's going on in this world? you've explained it just enough to tantalize me, but it still makes no sense. Uh, and it, it doesn't make no mm-hmm. sense in the way that the matrix makes no sense, which is that it doesn't make any sense. Uh, if you think about it, it's <laughs> tell us your real feelings, Eric. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I was saying on Twitter that it doesn't, it doesn't pass the fridge yeah. test and the fridge test is where you can get up and go to the fridge to get a drink. And by the time you've come back to the, the, the couch, 
you've thought of some plot holes that like the movie just can't answer. And uh, so the matrix, the matrix has, right. has some of that, and it, it, you know, it, whatever. Um, but John wick gives you just enough to tantalize you. And I think the reason that it is able to support this is that we buy into John wick as a character and we buy into his, uh, the emotional stakes of the story first before we see any action. And what you just said about how we get just enough to be tantalized reminded me of the essay that kind of started this whole thing, the one that we looked at in episode one. And there's a quote in there. I don't remember the exact quote, but it's something like, the Zhang Hu is mysterious from without and awesome from within. And we can cite Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, you know, Jade Fox. Uh, she gives us a little bit of detail about the Zhang Hu and so does Li Mu Bai and so does Dark Cloud. But we don't ever get a thesis statement or a, dissert, a dissertation like the matrix gives us about what the mm -hmm. real world is, you know, um, and maybe mystery about not just the characters within the world, but the world itself is a really important element of, of Wuxia and the Zhang Hu. And I think that that quasi magical element about it, you know, when we, when we look at, uh, you know, Li Mubai, he has these, these powers, right. He could basically fly. Or when we look at, the magic blade there's all of these set pieces and they're all very theatrical and magical and and metaphorical and we see the same thing scaled down a little bit we see it in john wick as well that i mean pk you were talking about like these look like mages to me but they're using guns mm -hmm. instead of casting spells and i totally buy that yeah um it, if you haven't seen john wick 2 uh i would highly recommend it because John Wick 2 delivers in all of the ways that the Matrix sequels do not. It really enriches the world and shows even more of these crazy mythic Jong-Hu elements where there is this world that is separate from the real world. Real minor, minor spoiler, we get Lawrence Fishburne and Keanu Reeves together again in John Wick 2. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and Lawrence Fishburne is the king of the hobo assassins. That that is his role. That is it's that cool is stuff. that is who he is. And it's just so interesting the way they present him and it, it it's almost magical. Like even more than anything else in John Wick. John Wick 2 has that almost just out of the corner of your eye near magic stuff that is super tantalizing and fascinating that you can really dig your teeth into. I prefer the first John Wick to the second one, but only slightly. And I think that the major strength of the second one is that it does such a good job of world building and expanding that world without ever touching its nose and telling us exactly what's going on, you know? I think it's safe to say, first of all, that we all like John Wick a little more than we like The Matrix. <laughs> uh, second of all, I think it's safe to say that John Wick is a better example of Wuxia, but even though it's a better example, is it? can we call it a good example? I think so. I think it's demonstrating enough with its violence. Uh, some of it, again, is, is still pretty simple, but I think the violence is a little more uh, nuanced in the film than it was um, like maybe in the matrix where a lot of the scenes just sort of demonstrate competence. We get beats within each scene, uh, especially like when John wick is in the nightclub hunting the, the, the sun down 
and he's chasing him through like these mm-hmm. these multiple levels and he keeps encountering these different threats and mm-hmm. it's almost uh, I'll, I'll i'll come back to this point but um he in each stage he encounters uh, someone who is a kind of a different level and he actually meets his match in a couple of spots where he's not completely overwhelmed, but like they're more even like when he meets that, like the head security guy, they have, he's sort of the, the, the comparable level to John wick, uh, at least in that domain because he owns it. And John wick is the interloper. At first I was trying to think of examples of, communicative violence in the movie. Um, and you, you mentioning that there are a couple of times where he kind of meets his match. Like for example, the church fight that he has with the guy who I'm pretty sure is the action choreographer for the movie. But yeah, that fight is a really good example of a protracted fight. Most of the time though, it's just John wick totally dominating everyone that he encounters. And at first I was like, can we call that good violence in the wuxia sense? If there's, if the only message being conveyed is that John Wick is way better than all these other people. But like you said earlier, this is kind of the story about the Peacock King coming out of retirement. And we would expect the Peacock King to be really powerful and head and shoulders above everybody he encounters, except for a rare few. The question that the movie keeps asking is how far will he go? You know, he gets really messed up in the nightclub and he he ends up having to get sort of stitched back together and that only sort of partially takes, well, will he keep going now that he, now that he is, uh, you know, pretty badly injured and then it moves all the way to the end. And then when he finally has the confrontation with the Russian mafia boss and they do it, they duke it, they duke it out hand to hand. I think that one is really, that's where the emotional stakes are really high. I think it's, it's one of the scenes where the action is, maybe not quite as believable just because we have Keanu on one side and we have this, this older Russian mafia boss on the other. But I think the emotional stakes are what really drive this scene because Keanu has been able to express why he is doing what he's doing. And the mafia boss has made a huge sacrifice, but now isn't let, isn't willing to go any further. And so they've, they've come together and there are these two massive forces colliding and those emotional stakes uh, and those physical stakes combine and they come off. They both come off worse for wear. Right. But, and they achieve sort of a, uh, they sort of reachieve a stasis in that situation. For me, the reason this, I think we can call this a Western interpretation of Wuxia is because there is so much violence in the film that is inherently tied to the code of the underworld and so much of the violence in the underworld is driven by character needs and, and stakes. So you have the story of Miss Perkins who violates the one inviolable rule of the underworld, which is there is no business on hotel grounds when she goes and tries to kill John and she pays the ultimate price eventually But through most of the movie, she keeps escalating. She keeps pushing things because she has a drive to kill John and sort of establish herself as the best in the world. Well, and get all that sweet moolah that is being offered for him. Uh, Double the price if if she'll kill him on uh, in the Hotel Continental. Um, And then you also have the story with uh, John's mentor, Marcus, 
played by Willem Dafoe, who is sort of an ambiguous character that we meet at first, and then we see what he's doing and how he's affecting the narrative. And when he is finally killed, that's what pulls John back because John had made a deal with, um, with the mob boss that, Hey, if you let me have your son, I will stop and I won't kill you and the rest of your gang. Like I will let you keep something. So the mob boss was finally like, yes, you've already taken enough from me. Take my son and call it done. But the mob boss sort of antagonized by Miss Perkins kills Marcus and then taunts John about it. And that's what brings John back for the final confrontation. So it's all tied into the politics and the code of honor in the Zhang Hu that keeps driving this cycle of violence. Yeah. You killed my master. Now you must die. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. I'm also impressed that you remembered Willem Dafoe's character name because every time I see him in any movie, I'm just like, oh, it's Willem Dafoe. <laughs> Does that about wrap it up for, for John Wick? Do we have any have anything else we wanted to say? I just want to say that this movie is, it's kind of stunning. It It's really a good, good movie. It starts off like it's the Pixar movie up and then it becomes sort of a hybrid version of road to perdition and man on fire with all the style of the matrix. And it's just stunning top to bottom. Yeah. I'm glad you said something. Cause I was going to say the only thing I have left to say is that people really, really, really need to watch it. If they have not, it's so good. I, I was, I was completely blown away by it. I mean, my, my heart was, was racing. And just after the first scene where the dozen guys come in to attack John wick in his house and I saw that action and I just had to kind of stop for a second and go process the action that I saw because it was so well choreographed. Uh, I remember what I was going to say earlier and I had sort of put it on pause was that one of the things that I thought was really interesting just from a, uh, a visual style was, and it didn't bother me like I thought it might, but I, I thought, Oh man, this is this movie feels like when you're just really in the zone in a, in a first person shooter. If I'm playing, you know, Resident Evil or something, and I'm no scoping zombies and and you know doing all that kind of like cool gun action in a video game, that it looked like that was the influence of the movie to say we can go to these levels, we can play it like a video game, and we can put that level of action and sort of nonsense gunfighting in it but we have to we actually have to ground it we actually have to ground it with an actual emotional story and actual characters that have things that they want yeah and i mean to talk a little bit about behind the scenes i want to emphasize again that i am a stage combat professional and i do perform stage combat in in various shows around chicago so i'm not knocking on these guys when i say this but like it's astounding to me that most of the production crew either had no credits or only had credits as stuntmen. And yet they managed to turn out this movie that is such good storytelling. It's it, I think that it's an application of every bit of wisdom about using violence to tell a story. And it's just so good. All right. Well, why don't we move on to our gameable ideas? We sort of, we always sort of, you know, slosh in and out of this section as we, as we talk. But I think we have, I think we have some more stuff to talk about, you know, for our gameable ideas, for sure. 
I want to start off uh, with the only thing I can think of from the Matrix that might be gameable, and that's to say that, uh, or to reemphasize that we need to not make the Zhang Hu too explicit in making a game about this world. You know, what we see in the Matrix is that it's maybe a little too clear what goes on in this heterotopia, and we don't want that. We want to maintain a little bit of that mystery. Well, and I guess what we talked about earlier was that the Zhang Hu in the Matrix is not is not strictly speaking a Zhang Hu in that it's not created in the vacuum created by a powerless government, right? It's a, it's actually they're 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 more of a rebel force, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's maybe why it doesn't play as well to that story structure. Uh, and but I I agree that like. Mm-hmm. It is a it is a good example yeah. of a bad example for for us to take uh, some take some wisdom from. So I want to talk. PK and I were having a conversation on Twitter, and this was months ago. But I think this is the only point that we disagreed on. And I want to talk about mooks because I think mooks are super important playing uh, tabletop games with violence. And the, your reaction to them was really interesting. Uh, you were very sympathetic towards mooks pk okay i'm hmm i don't remember this because i agree that mooks are an awesome gaming storytelling device and i I love mowing down some mooks in pretty much every game i may be putting you on the spot i'm not sure it might have been specifically what i was watching that you were commenting on that that you were talking talking about about mooks i actually because i had this thought in my head from earlier it actually made me it made me think about like kind of what makes good mooks versus bad mooks as far as, um, and let me step back and actually define what I mean by the word mook, because it's not in every role-playing game. So a mook uh, in this, in how I'm using it is the type of enemy that you can mow down with no compunction. They are the, the cadre of soldiers that come in along with the big bad. And you can mow your way through those guys, demonstrate your competence, before you get into the main thrust of the action. Uh, it feels really good to take them out. It, it helps establish that that competence beat that's really valuable in combat. So I think that's really important to talk about mooks. Sure. Uh, examples in the movies we just talked about are the guards in the lobby in Matrix and then the first 12 guys who come to kill John Wick. Exactly. Oh, I mean, honestly, anybody that comes to kill John Wick is... is the, the, the mook, except for the the few sort of challenging yeah. characters when he goes into the nightclub and he's taking out random mafia guards you know those guys are all mooks um, right it actually thinking about mooks and as i was watching the matrix this has never bothered me before and i think it was because i was looking at it so closely but it's sort of like thinking about the metaphysics of ghostbusters that like the more you think about it, sort of the worse it becomes. And so you just kind of just don't. But I was like, these are just regular people. Like these are literally just security guards. These are just people living their everyday life. And then they get mowed down by Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss. What happens yeah, to them? They're only part of the John Hu by association, you know, and I shouldn't think about that. I mean, I think that's the part that we want to talk about. That's why stormtroopers make good mooks. That's why robots make good mooks. That's why, uh, you know, ninjas and random gunmen make good mooks because they're not characters, right? As soon as like the action pauses long enough for you to go, yeah, but what's that guy's story? I think that's where mooks fall apart. 
I can get down with that. So we are we are settled on mooks. Don't look too hard at them and don't make them maybe don't make them so interesting that you want to look harder at them. Yeah, that's a good point because I I'm going to do what I always do and relate this to Star Wars. Uh one of the major failings of Star Wars as sort of especially the expanded universe is anyone that ever had any screen time ever got an epic backstory. So there Star Wars fandom and even Star Wars literature got to the point where there was no mystery anymore. Everything got explained. You if you wanted to, you could find out the backstory of everyone in the cantina band or in in the cantina scene, which sort of sucks a lot of the fun out of it for me. And it destroys the the narrative power of the story that you've already created because if if the cantina is already filled right. with six secret Jedi and I'm probably lowballing um, that, uh, that well, there, there were no secret Jedi, just one guy who wanted to eat Jedi. Yeah. Souls. Right. And, and so you're like, Oh great. Well now we have this brand new Jedi. But we have all of these other interesting stories that like the story that we're telling, isn't the most interesting story that's here. Then why are we telling this story? Um, and if your mooks right. are more interesting than yeah. your, uh, than 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 the rest of what's going on, then you're probably either putting too much attention on them or you are playing the wrong game. Yeah, and I mean definitely have supporting characters, but when you have too many it becomes a problem. Right. I mean I think this is why something like Apocalypse World is really great, where it says name every character. Because Apocalypse World has no mooks. People can die as easily as mooks die. You know, you can kill people without rolling, you can kill all you know, um but when you say, you know, great, Dremer, shithead, and balls just drop dead, you're like, oh, geez, three named characters just died. With some great names, may I add. <laughs> yeah, th- and those come right from Apocalypse World. Uh, they're some of my favorites. Oh, okay. that- they were on the tip of my brain for some reason. <laughs> yeah, but uh, it's important to keep in mind that Apocalypse World is doing a different style of story than what a typical Wuxia story is going to do. So if you wanted to make an Apocalypse World hack that does Wuxia, you would actually probably want to have um, a GM principle in there that is to name everyone but the mooks. Mm-hmm. And then a separate GM principle, which is uh, hurl the mooks at the heroes. Because that is, one, how you find out that they are mooks, is your they come at your heroes and just get beat the hell down and two, give your heroes a chance to demonstrate their competence and carry forward. Generally speaking in the narrative structure, carry forward some sort of social currency that they earn by beating down all the mooks. What would you say to the idea that you should name the mooks, but you should name them collectively? You know, you've got the ax gang, you've got the SWAT team, you've got that sort of thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, you've got the crazy 88. That's fine. Yeah. But you you don't want to give them individual stories. Mm-hmm. Right. As soon as you give one an individual characteristic, uh, then, then, then that guy becomes a character and he needs to not be lumped in with the rest of the mooks. Yeah. We lose focus. I think Master Bo is maybe an interesting comparison from Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. He is basically a mook, but he's in the story quite a bit. And... Well... Master Bo plays mm-hmm. the fool. Mm-hmm. Like that's his that's his narrative place. 
he's there to provide a little bit of comic relief and sort of expound to the audience what is going on. Mm. So, yeah, I guess maybe I've been underestimating Master Bo this whole time <laughs> because he's comedic relief. I mean, Master Bo is C-3PO. Oh, man. You're so right. Effectively. Yeah. I, he, oh, wow. And he, he helps us, he helps show off the the scale of our heroes and the, the nobility of our heroes by acting, you know, kind of dopey when he gets in the fight scenes. But then he goes and he actually has, he does actual real story work. You know, when he goes and he meets the, the police officer, detective or whoever, whose wife was murdered by Jade Fox, you know, he goes and he makes friends with them and then brings them into the story. So yeah, Bo is doing more work than a mook does. Okay. Yeah. Point taken. I would like also like to talk about uh, pacing, uh, especially pacing in combat is uh, it can be a tricky thing depending on which game you're playing uh, because pacing is often set by the game and not set by the story. And, and so at this, you want to make sure you are playing the right game. And hopefully when Elon and I construct a game that does this, it will have the pacing that we see in something like John Wick, where we have these ups and these downs and we have scenes where characters can move very quickly through a, a, a horde of mooks, but then stop and then have a, a momentous fight scene with a more challenging adversary where we can communicate back and forth with other uh, either more traditional systems or systems that aren't built for wuxia action it's still an important thing to bring up especially in combat of trying to work in those narrative beats so that we don't have the same type over and over and over again and i don't have unfortunately i don't since we're not talking specific systems it's hard to have real constructive advice because i think each system has its own tricks to making the combat flow well. But I think we've all been in those D&D games where either the, all the roles are going way, way up or they're going way, way down. And so we're either hitting, we're hitting the same beat over and over and over again. And mm -hmm. the combat, even if we're winning, is boring. Moreover, I think the pacing we should learn from uh, these movies and the and Wuxia movies in more in general is that... A fight should never just be a fight. The pacing of the story should move forward based on the action in the fight, uh, which, oh, I should find that link and send it to you guys so we can include it. John Rogers has a great article he wrote about storytelling through action scenes and how uh, if you are, you should never write an action scene for a movie just to be an action scene because that's boring. You should write an action scene to advance the story and create stakes other than will the hero survive or die? Mm -hmm. Because the hero, if I mean, if it's the first half of the movie, the hero is not going to die, right? That's that's never really the tension in Die Hard. The tension in Die Hard is what cost is John McClane going to pay in order to win this fight? And then every fight in Die Hard also changes the situation of the dynamic between John and the terrorists um, between uh, Hans Gruber's gang. So that's where the, for me, the, the larger pacing comes from is you need to have each fight mean something and do something to the story. It can't just be a fight. Yeah. I think that's super well put. 
you can see it in in John Wick in the nightclub scene because it's not actually about John Wick mowing through a horde of bad guys. He's trying to catch the the son of the the mafia boss. He's trying to he's trying to get the guy mm-hmm. that killed his dog, and that's the stake. Is is that guy going to escape? Well, and one thing that I didn't mention the first time we brought up that scene is that I notice or I seem to notice in that scene that he is actually timing his gunshots with the beat of the music. Oh yeah. That's for sure. In that first, in that first scene, he absolutely is. Yeah. And so not only is he trying to catch this guy, but he's also trying to do it without causing a panic. That's going to create a stampede and, and inhibit his ability to find this guy in the first place. Right. And then eventually that slips out of his control. Mm -hmm. And then that's where the momentum of the fight changes. Wow. So I do not process audio information very quick or well. Um, like I, I have no musical talent <laughs> at all. Um, so that actually had completely escaped. He's me. going through the, the dance floor and he's doing these like real close up shots on the, on the guys. Like he's grabbing them in real close and he's shooting them in the chest and people keep dancing. And I would, it, I, I was watching it and going, what's going on with these people? Why, why aren't they reacting? And then I recognized what Eli just mentioned that he was timing out the shots. Oh, I have to watch it again yeah. now. Shucky like that's, right? <laughs> oh, too bad. I had, I, I did not pick up on that. That's, that's awesome. But that's also something like movie trailers are doing now. Like the, the first trailer for um, the Punisher, when it came out, um, the Punisher's machine gun blasts were timed to, the the staccato drum beat of Metallica's one, mm-hmm. which is already meant to be mimicking a, a machine gun blast. So it's this weird <laughs> full circle sort of thing. Um, yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And I haven't seen baby driver, but from what I understand, a lot of the music and action is synchronized in the same yes. way. And much like John wick, when it becomes, when it loses sync is when things start going off the rails and start going wrong. Mm, cool because that's that's the that's the narrative character moment or uh not moment but character device for baby is he listens to music he uses it as he's driving that's what that's his trick his superpower for doing all of this and when he loses sync when he loses the beat things go wrong are we interested in this martial arts versus who shot the table i was gonna say that's exactly what i was gonna ask is did we want to talk about this because i sure do martial arts versus wusha at the table is a really interesting topic because as i think we discussed here today martial arts don't necessarily mean a, a story is going to be wusha wusha has larger connotations and it's has more to do with society and the Jiang Hu and things like that. Uh, in fact, some of the more famous martial arts movies out there, the Jackie Chan cop movies aren't wuxia because there's not really a Jiang Hu there. That's basically just a Hong Kong Kung Fu movie. But at the table, I would say 95% of the things that people play is just martial arts and not wuxia because they're not tying into these specific themes and storylines and narrative traditions that are wuxia. This is the Zhang Hu, the cycle of violence, the idea of the various virtues and uh, 
all that that lead into having a Shah that is upright and virtuous and of this great and incredible power working outside of the strictures of normal society. Most of what we get at the table is going to be a martial arts story. Uh, and this usually only comes up when people play monks in D&D or other sort of martial artist grappling characters in RPGs. What they're doing is more martial arts things, more like, uh, yeah, the Jackie Chan, Jackie Chan Super Cop series or any number of Jean-Claude Van Damme movies, things like that. Um, I don't think people are typically doing Wuxia, but... Um, if we can get a game that does Wuxia, that would be really cool because then we're investing more drama into our martial arts and more story into them as well. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that honestly, you can enrich your game even by just digging into the, the martial arts section. You know, if we if we watch these movies and, and let's admit it, part of the draw is watching this action. We can consciously acknowledge that we're not building a wuxia story we're just excited to play with these these martial arts and to see what they look like and have different characters interact on a on a tactical level uh or even a even a narrative level that that's not necessarily a wuxia narrative and i think engaging with that creatively and openly so you're not sort of mixing the you're not mixing the two where they don't need to be mixed because there's nothing wrong with having a martial story. You know, there's nothing wrong with those Jean-Claude Van Damme movies or the Jackie Chan movies. They're super fun and they're super fun to play at the table. It's valuable to think about what kind of game you want to play. Mm -hmm. I guess I just didn't want to like put down and I don't think you were doing this uh, put down like martial arts, like as if it were lesser because I don't think it is. I just think it's, it's just a component piece that, we can we can stick in other things and make them fun and interesting, but it is not all that Wuxia is. And I think recognizing that is, is yeah. what I'm trying to get at. Absolutely. And that's what I'm trying to say as well. Um, the number one class that I play in D&D is the monk. And I, I'm not doing Wuxia stories because that's not the story that D&D typically tells. You know, I'm playing a martial arts character. I'm just, I'm not doing Wuxia. Yeah. Ditto. I, uh, monks are my favorite character, and there's really not much room in most D&D campaigns for any sort of actual wuxia storytelling. But even within wuxia, there are degrees, you know. I mean, you've got, uh, I can't think of an example that's just relentlessly martial arts the whole time. But on the other end of the spectrum, you've got stuff like Curse of the Golden Flower, which is a movie that I don't care for very much because I don't think there's enough fighting in it. But, uh, it's the same idea that it is definitely a wuxia story about the Zhang Hu and the Shah that inhabit it, but it is a lot more about intrigue than it is about action. I mean, Hero is, you know, a surprisingly not fighty story that everybody thinks is a great Kung Fu movie. And it's a great movie, but it's, you know, there's a lot less fighting in it than I remembered when I watched it <laughs> to listen to, uh, to you guys and a lot more um, beautiful swooshing yeah. at each other and not a lot of hitting. Like I was saying, it's it's as far as you can get along a wuxia storyline before it's just drama. Yeah. Finding finding where your level is uh, is is important uh, on that on that scale. 
Yeah, and I don't want anyone to mistake me. I love Hero. It's a great movie. It's just I watched it again and I was just like, huh, this is not as as good of a fight movie mm-hmm. as I thought it was. I, yeah, I think I think uh, I experienced the same thing. All right, should we move on? I my stealing as art section is very small this week. Um, I I will bring up more games later, and I brought up games earlier. Um, but I think the main one, because I was looking so closely at the filmic elements, especially in the Matrix, and the, because the Matrix is such a hodgepodge, it made me think of Feng Shui. Uh, well, specifically Feng Shui too, because that's the one that I know the best. Um, which is very much a a game from a filmic perspective. Yeah, it's Big Trouble in Little China, the game. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and, it, and and I think it's more than that, right? I mean, I think I think you can absolutely just play that game, um, but I think there is even there are even more tropes and more things that you can pile on in there. Like if you want if you want samurai plus Jack Burton plus some crazy kid martial artist plus you know all of it you can jam all of these things together to assemble the kind of story that you want to tell uh, i think feng shui is the the game for that and if you especially it's really excellent for thinking visually about what's going on in your story and prioritizing that over real crunchy tactical details of 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 the actual combat. I mean, the, the, the mechanics themselves get a little in the weeds, like the more that you progress on the game, but they're basically pretty simple. And, you know, you get a big number, you get to narrate a big thing. And that's basically the whole game mm-hmm. taking on the tropes that you're interested in and, and then being encouraged to roll those back into the story is a really valuable thing that you can learn from feng shui. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it really talks about that. Plus it's got a really good filmography. Um, and a really good, uh, I think a pretty good GM section for the style of game that it is. And just from a purely mechanical perspective, I also really love the shot clock initiative system. Oh, I do too. I think it's very clever. And and it reinforces that this is a movie that we're making. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that's implied in a lot of Robin Laws's design, but this is the one that's the most explicit about it. And I think it's all the better for it. Yeah. And thinking about, I will often describe when I, I'll describe crane shots or helicopter shots or like like tight tight zooms or or that sort of thing when I'm when I'm communicating with people because we all watch TV, we all know what these things are and it is a very compact way of getting a lot of visual information over an audio medium. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I will say, I mean, there are a lot of situations yeah. where I would not use camera terminology just because I, I would prefer to stick to something that's a little more period appropriate, um, even for a fantasy game that does not take place in a world with cameras at all. You know, I mean, if it's a, if it's Shadowrun, I'm more likely to use camera terminology than I am with straight D&D. But still, the conception for this particular game of specific shots is exactly the way that you should gamify a fight scene or one extremely valid way to do it anyway. Right. A fight scene as, uh, as a movie fight scene mm-hmm. for sure. I am actually really interested. I, I would love to have you like expound on like what your narrative style is for like a D and D game or something like that. I'm not sure this is the place, but it's, it's a really interesting idea. Let's, let's roll it. Let's, I guess let's roll it to, uh, let's bring it back into the, the, 
wuxia so let's say we were telling a crouching tiger hidden dragon age story so camera terms are sort of inappropriate if i want to use that word so can you kind of tell me how you would communicate differently than you would if you ran it in feng shui if you ran it in some mythical game system yeah well sometimes uh i might use terminology like uh so for example when i run games in the blackwood I have a framing device where I start off saying that you find yourself in a room and the only thing on in this room is a pedestal with a large book on it. And the book opens up of its own accord and you recognize this as magic, which is useful, but also dangerous. And you find yourself irresistibly drawn toward this book and a wind that you can't feel blows the pages open and the, the pages flutter past each other as you fall into the book and into the world of story. And then if I'm doing a wipe from one scene to another, uh, which would I wipe as a camera term, but instead I might say like the pages flutter again and you find yourself here or something instead, you know? And so, and, and in that setting that's drawn directly from fairy tales, the idea of doing this almost Disney movie style opening where you're looking at a book and you're talking about things in terms of what's on a page makes a lot of sense to me. Um, for something like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, I might just eschew that sort of meta narrative altogether and say, you know, you, instead of saying like, there's a, there's a camera zoom or like we're way up on a crane or something like that. It's just like, we are, we are floating above this situation and we can look down and see what's going on. And then we, we rush down and we can see the details of this one moment, this flower petal or whatever that's falling in the midst of this fight, uh, that sort of thing. That's excellent. Yeah, I, I just really wanted to, to dig into that a lot. I use movie terms a lot, but I, I recognize that like they're not always appropriate. So I just wanted to make sure that that we honed in on that. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, a lot of the time they are appropriate and I'm absolutely willing to use them. But um, I there are moments when I'm like, no, I think I kind of want to challenge myself to find something that's maybe a little more uh, appropriate for this particular game that I'm running. So I have one more thing, and I don't quite know where it fits in our discussion, but I wanted to dig into using a fictional conceit as a logical element in a story. And it comes up in The Matrix, and it came up in The Magic Blade, which is why I I was thinking about it. So in The Matrix, Trinity tells Neo that he can't die because she's in love with him and because she's in love with him she was told by the oracle that that she would fall in love with the one right and so if she's fallen in love with him then therefore he must be the one therefore he can't die right it's not a great moment in the movie at least not for me Uh, it feels hammy but there's a spot in the end of the magic blade where fu hung su re-encounters his ally slash adversary from the beginning of the movie who who we thought was dead and but fu hung is not surprised he says well i knew you wouldn't be dead because i pledged to kill you by my own hand and so therefore you couldn't have been dead Hmm. and it's a weird it's a it's a like it it works in the magic blade in a in a weird way uh, especially because of the, the sort of the mythic nature of that story where it kind of doesn't work in the matrix. And I was curious about what you thought about that inserting narrative conceits 
as logical structures within within the story. Yeah, I, I would say that the difference is uh, the direction of the statement, right? So whenever whenever Trinity says, you can't be dead because I love you, she's saying, there is a quality about me that dictates how you must exist. Whereas in The Magic Blade, I would say Fu Hong Su is saying... I swore that I would be the only one to kill you, which is why I know you wouldn't be dead. But that's more like a compliment for the guy. It's like, I, I have fought you before and I know how good you are. And I know I'm the only, not only did I swear to be the one to kill you, but I know I'm the only one who can. And so I was confident that nobody else was going to do it while I was taking this year off. Yeah, no, that's that's good. I guess I didn't read it that way, that it was a that it was a compliment, that it was a an acknowledgement of the skill and the scale of the opponent. Um, I took it, I, t- I guess I took it really literally and I was like, oh, that's a really interesting story device. But I think, I think you're right. I think it's, uh, it's more of a, of a communication between those two characters. And so when it gets used in the matrix as a, uh, dude, don't be dead to quote another Keanu Reeves movie, <laughs> uh, it, it kind of, it, it doesn't quite work in the story and i but it's a it's a really sort of tantalizing idea especially i think because eli your your game is so like fairy tale based and they have their own logic which is not necessarily actual logic right they have story logic like of course this happens because it's a fairy tale and that's what happens in fairy tales yeah i would like to explore that idea a little a little more like if we could find a really good example of that i think it'd be a really interesting thing to dig into absolutely yeah i'm trying to think if there are any movies i've seen that have an example of that um there's one called the duel with andy law and ekin chang it's not a great movie but um it's the same general conceit of like we fought before and we're going to fight again but i don't know if there's a moment where they display deference toward each other's skill in that same way well, this might be a good time for our uh, our very intelligent listeners to let us know if if what I'm saying is way off base or if you're like, oh, no, I know just the movie. You guys really need to check out this. Let us know. We really value everything that you say to us. We really take it on board. And leading on from that, we have a, we have a few comments. We don't have quite as many as last time. But we still have uh, plenty of good stuff to talk about here from from our listeners. Yeah. Um, so the first one is some pretty exciting news. Uh, we're going to link this in the show notes, but it's from Jeremy Downey, who uh, pointed out to us that a trilogy, a Wuxia book trilogy called Legends of the Condor Heroes is being translated into English for the first time. And I don't quote me on this, but this might be the first time that a Wuxia story has ever had an official translation into English. Um, one of the frustrations that I have with this genre is that like, I would love to go back and read Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, or, or just any of the source material for these stories that have been written as late as the twenties or forties even. Um, but undoubtedly much earlier than that water margin is, uh, I think over a thousand years old, um, maybe over 2000. Anyway, the point is there aren't any good translations of, uh, Chinese wuxia literature. And this trilogy of books that's been written, 
about like one of the most iconic wuxia stories ever is going to be translated i think he said into 12 different books which is a little bit of an indicator about how long these books are i'm <laughs> a little worried that it's Chinese. not that they're not going to make it all the way to the end yeah i mean it would depend on sales i suppose and they said also that the first book that they are going to release in february took a year and a half to translate so this is a labor intensive process i uh I'm a little worried, but I'll be grateful for whatever snippets I can get of that world. You know, you had um, sort of repointed me towards this article that that Jeremy had said because I I was talking about the hero's journey, and you said, "Oh well, I think this might have some hero's journey in it too." And I came across a really interesting term in the article, and it said that Legends of the Condor heroes, uh, at least that this first book was a was a Bildungsroman which is a term that I had to look up because it was sort of one of those terms that I thought I knew what it was, but I wasn't sure. So a buildings Roman is a literary genre that focuses on the moral of the the psychological and moral growth of the protagonist from youth to adulthood in which character change is very important. It's essentially a coming of age story. And so that's different from a hero's journey story. So I'll be curious when this thing comes out. Uh, we may have to have a book club episode of, of Jung Hu Hustle in February of 2018. I'm totally down. All right. Awesome. Uh, where we look at that versus uh, a hero's journey, like what we see in the matrix where, and this is, I've just ripped this right from Wikipedia. So you guys were not experts. A hero ventures forth from the world of the common day into a region of supernatural wonder. Fabulous forces are there encountered and a decisive victory is won. The hero comes back from this mysterious adventure with the power to bestow boons on his fellow man. So they're quite different. Like, I I think it's easy to see the story of like a young person sort of gaining power and gaining status and like thinking that that you're on your way to a hero's journey where you're actually sort of a coming of age story instead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I don't think the two terms are mutually exclusive, but they are definitely not the same thing either. PK, do you want to take this next one? <laughs> sure. So I sent this in because as I was watching Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, uh, which side note, I realized I had never bought Crouching Tiger. I had just managed to borrow it on DVD from people for ages. So I got the Blu-ray. Anyway. I'm glad we were able to correct that uh, omission in your collection. Oh, yeah. Um, And then I promptly watched it when I got back from Thanksgiving. Anyway, I remembered from your conversation that you had talked about sort of the time period of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon and how it's a little nebulous, but seems to be maybe 18th or 17th century. Um, But there's a line or a couple of lines in there with Sir Tay uh, talking to somebody they're discussing the green destiny and they mention that it is 400 years old and was made in the Qin dynasty using techniques lost in the Han dynasty. So the, uh, those are both very early dynasties in the history of China, um, and puts crouching tiger, hidden dragon sort of either in the late Han dynasty, or since it seems like that was maybe a reference to something, uh, a past dynasty, uh, early Three Kingdoms era. So maybe as old as um, about 17, 1800 years old. But again, Crouching Tiger is sort of a uh, timeless classic mythological China. So pinning it down is maybe a fool's errand. 
Yeah, well, you had you had uh, mentioned this on Twitter, and I had responded a little bit there, and um, I couldn't tell you where I read this, but I know I read somewhere there was a sentence in some essay or something about how Wuxia is often pretty anachronistic in its time period, and so I totally agree with you. Yeah, according to the text of the movie, uh, it seems like it takes place in a much earlier era than I had said in the past episode. But in terms of like costuming and technology and hairstyle specifically, uh, it is definitely something that's much later on the timeline. I think the the Ming Dynasty is what I said uh, his hairstyle comes from, and I want to say that's anywhere from the 1600s to the 1900s. So yeah, clearly we've discovered a gap, <laughs> an unexplainable uh, anachronism in in that movie. <laughs> I don't think it's a problem. I, I think the matrix does something sort of similar. Like it, it takes place. The matrix is sort of set in the year 1999. Um, but there's all of these things that are, are older in the movie. Uh, there's lots of old cars and, you know, old phones and like the, a lot of the, the set design kind of harkens back to like an older, uh, you know, um, kind of you know mid mid-century sort of stuff and mm -hmm. i think that helps sort of contribute to its otherworldliness even setting it even though it's sort of pretending to be the real world so i i actually think that's a really valuable thing to pay attention to that you don't necessarily have to focus things so specifically if you want to give it that mythic quality setting it in a real broad time range i think is 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 an indicator of that. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And I think it's possible to do that anachronism or to do that kind of kitchen sink style historical um, representation uh, poorly. I think it, it would be really easy to make it a little bit too much like big trouble in little China or something like that. But uh, I'm, I'm yeah, hearing a lot I, of shade I, thrown at Big Trouble in Little China. I think we. I love okay, it. Okay, good. Just to be all clear, right, all right. I think it's a masterpiece, but I think it's a hot mess of a masterpiece. <laughs> <laughs> all right, good. I was going to say, I was like, there's a there's a certain Phil Vecchion. I think they'd be very upset to hear you disparage that. <laughs> no, movie, but. Phil, I'm very sorry. I uh, like Big Trouble in Little China quite a lot. Uh, we should talk about it sometime. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. All right, good. Now that you're suitably chastened, why don't we move on to our last comment from, <laughs> from Eric Bontz, the Weregator. And he was just sort of stream of consciousness responding to our last episode. And so I thought I would answer a couple of his questions. Um, really just one question. He said, the episode was making me wonder what games do well at defining slash evolving slash involving stakes as part of a character's concept. And I keep bringing up Mouse Garden and Burning Wheel, but uh, the beliefs and goals in both of those help set both a character concept. And they also set, he's also talking about session level and campaign level stakes. And goals in Mouse Guard are session are explicitly session level stakes. You set a goal for your your mouse that could be, you know, I will I will keep the other people in my party safe. That could be your goal. More more than I want to go and I want to accomplish the thing that is the mission. You also set a goal that is adjacent to that, or I want to make sure that this person likes me at the end. Like that's part of your your stake for that. And then 
um, that's sort of a simpler version of how beliefs are handled in Burning Wheel. Beliefs in Burning Wheel have two parts. They have a they have a session or campaign level section at the beginning, and then they have a this is the action I will take to work my way towards that. So your thing maybe I will be king is your is your the opening part of your burning wheel belief. And then the second part of that is I will get the court vizier on my side uh, for this upcoming trouble that's ahead. Right. So then th- those two things. And then when you accomplish the the smaller part of that, then you keep the bigger part, you keep the I will be king part. And now you work on, well, now that I have the court vizier either uh, in hand or I have made him truly my enemy, then I can work on to the, the next the next thing. Anytime you're talking about defining character concepts being stakes in a game, my mind immediately goes to fate because you have aspects and aspects are things that are always true about your character, but they are also the mechanical bits in the game that let the GM push you to drive story. So if you are uh, using uh, my own game, Three Rocketeers, as an example, if you have your high concept, your Rocketeer aspect set as uh the stalwart musketeer that says that you are sort of the true believer, the person who's going to get the job done. And you probably value uh, faith and fidelity more than anyone else. So the GM can throw in a traitorous musketeer and start compelling your stalwart musketeer aspect in order to encourage you to go after that person and drive towards the, uh, drive towards the story that they are trying to present. Um, But any aspect can be used to drive the story and create stakes. And most fate implementations have campaign level aspects that people can use as well. Yeah. I can't believe we missed that one. I think that's, uh, that's really good. Fate. It's got so many great pieces to it and aspects and beliefs and goals are related in that there is an economy attached to those things that make you want to interact with them and that make the GM want to push on those buttons to make those, those stakes really strong and uh, give them teeth. Um, I, I have a, um, I have one last one and it's kind of a weird one, but I, I always want to recommend that people go check this one out. Uh, it's a game called Archipelago. It's a, and it's Archipelago three cause it's, it's third revision. It's by, uh, Matthias Holter and it's a GM list game and it's, it's a really unusual game and it uses cards for resolution and it does a lot of clever things it's free i recommend that people go out and they they check it i will drop a link in the show notes um but the way that it keeps the stories tight is that other people write uh everyone has their own character and the other people that are playing write essentially a scene or a stake that they would like to see you fulfill by the end of the session and they, they write these out and then you take them and then you pick the one that you're interested in and then you drive your action towards that stake uh, or that, that destiny. And it helps keep uh, stories really tight uh, or tighter because it is a GM-less game. And so GM-less games have a tendency to, to wander uh, because there's not somebody kind of helping shepherd play. 
And uh, I, I think it's just super interesting. It has a bunch of other things that are really clever and interesting. I think people should check out. But uh, Destiny Points are, if you're playing something that is a little more collaborative, um, even more so than than Fate can be, um, I think Archipelagos has a, like a really interesting design goal for uh, getting like stakes and at the session and character level kind of built right in to make sure that the action keeps moving. All right. Uh, should we wrap this thing up? Yeah, I guess so. Um, so I think it was a pretty good conversation. We got two movies out of this thing and we determined a lot about not just what Wuxia is, but what Wuxia is not. Um, I want to thank PK for joining us for this. Uh, thanks so much for being here, man. It was a lot of fun talking to you. Thank you for having me. It was an absolute blast. I look forward to every episode. So it's uh, just a lot of fun to be able to contribute. PK, where can people find you on the internet? I am all over Twitter. Uh, you can find me at PK underscore Sullivan there. Uh, I'm also on Facebook and Google Plus as PK Sullivan, but I am not as active there. Uh, you can also check my website, which I occasionally update. Uh, the most recent update as of this recording is a discussion of the Star Wars game that I ran at a catacon that went really, really amazingly well. Um, and I think is actually a pretty neat uh, deconstruction of how I put the adventure together and how awesome my players were. And that is PKSullivan.com because branding. Awesome. Eli, where can people nice. find you on the internet? Yeah, so I too spend a lot of time on Twitter these days at ZapDynamic. I also have a website, MythicGazetteer.com, and I uh, likewise spend plenty of time on Google Plus under my real-life human name, Eli Kurtz. And Eric, where can we find you? You can also find me on Twitter under my human name, Eric M. Farmer. You can find me on Google Plus. You can also find me doing my silly stuff at dogpoweredvehicle.com. And again, thanks so much, PK. Thank you, Eli. It was a really good chat. I'm really excited about a lot of things that we talked about. Absolutely. I'm excited to watch John Wick again. Yeah. Pay yeah. attention to that club scene. There's some. There's lots of good details in there. So yeah, I guess, folks, thanks for tuning in. And uh, we will be back. I So I guess a little bit of news. We probably will take a little bit longer than usual because I am getting married next week and uh, then I'm going on my honeymoon soon after. But uh, we might be able to pump out an episode sometime in December. Uh, pro pro probably not. I'm just, just, uh, just, I think this will be the last episode for December. So we've been putting out an episode every three weeks, which is the schedule that is really easily maintained for Eli and I. Uh, but with the holidays and Eli getting married and all of that sort of thing, I think you could probably expect uh, a little hiccup in the schedule as we roll over into the new year. And then we'll pick it back up in January. Um, expect an episode probably the first week in January, maybe the second week. Sounds good. Thanks for tuning in and may your Kung Fu grow stronger. John Who Hustle is being released on Misdirected Mark Productions, the media arm of Encoded Designs. Thanks for tuning in and may your kung fu grow stronger. Banner! All right. Banner! <laughs> <laughs>